I've just read Jesus' farewell speech to his followers. It's the last paragraph of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. And the main point, this is, this is important. Everything I say for the rest of the message is coming out of this. The main point that Jesus is making is that he is the king who is in charge of the world. It's right there in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is saying, I'm in charge. I run the world. A new state of affairs has been brought into existence by my life and my death and my resurrection. As a result of these things, I am running the world. Now you might say, how can that be? Look out the window. If Jesus is ruling the world, why is the world so messed up? And that's a fair question. But it doesn't defeat the point. Because the claim that Jesus is making is that he is already ruling the world. But this is not a claim that the world is already completely as he intends it to be. The claim is that Jesus is currently exercising his authority to move this world out from under the rule of corruption and greed and every kind of wickedness. He's working to take the world out from under the rule of evil and death and to bring it under the rule of his life-giving love. And how is he doing this? How is the one with all of the authority working out his authority. I mean, do do you understand? It's like a teacher that goes into an unruly classroom and has all of the authority, but that doesn't mean from day one, right, Alec? (laughs) Things are sorted out, right? It takes a while, like a day or two in your class. (laughs) Now, do you see, here is the king and he says, okay, now because of my life, because of my death, because of my resurrection, I've defeated all the powers, And I am now ruling the show. But how does he work this out? Well, look closely because this is the shocker. I mean, as hard as it is to believe that Jesus is in charge when we look at our world, that's not the most difficult to believe thing in this passage. It's what comes next in verse 19. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now here, Jesus is not only saying he's in charge, but he is making the point that his followers, those who believe that he is ruling the world, they have the responsibility to go out into the world and to make his authority real, to put it into practice. Now, this is quite audacious. How are we supposed to do this? How do we go about making real in the world today the authority of the king? Well, two words. Make disciples. All authority has been given to me. Now here's how I'm going to work it out. Make disciples. 
All authority has been given to me over this world. I've conquered evil and death. Now here's how that is going to roll out. You make disciples. Do you see that the work of God is never to reduce humans. It's always to elevate humans. The kingdom of God is not about humans being less. It's about humans being maximally human. I've got all authority. You go and work this out by making disciples. The way in which King Jesus set about delivering this world from evil and death. Some of it only he could do. Death, resurrection, conquering evil, conquering death. But a lot of it, as God works through Jesus, Jesus works through the church. He sends us out to make disciples of the nations. He's establishing his kingdom and his rule on earth as it is in heaven when we, the church, evangelize. When we bring the transformative news of God's work in Christ to the nations. Now, what is that transformative news? Very simple. It's that Jesus is in charge. It's verse 18. It's that Jesus is king. It's that Jesus rules the world. It's that Jesus has conquered death and evil. And there is a new king in town, Rome. There is a ruler. That's the transformative news. It's that Jesus is the Lord. That Jesus has defeated all of the powers that corrupt and enslave this world. And Jesus has commissioned us to evangelize. To be agents of his benevolent rescuing rule and reign. Just think about this for a minute. In AD 25. The year 25. There was no such thing as Christianity. All there was, was a young hermit in the Judean wilderness, John the Baptist, and his somewhat younger cousin, Jesus, who dreamed dreams and saw visions. That's all there was to it. 25 years later, there are riots in Rome because of Jesus. That's remarkable. All roads lead to Rome. This has traveled all the way to Rome. Fifteen years after that, his followers, Jesus' followers, are being persecuted by the emperor himself. And by AD 125, there is an official established Roman policy regarding the punishment of Christians. And then in another couple of centuries, Christianity has grown in the face of all that to dominate the major cities of the Roman Empire and even Rome itself. Now, now think about this. This is, this is one of the most remarkable facts about Christianity is its early explosive growth against all odds. We're talking about multitudes of once proud pagans converting to Christianity in the face of torture and death. This is astonishing. We're talking about Christianity, a religion that advocated a love that cut across racial boundaries in the midst of an ancient society that was built on racial segregation. We're talking about an ethical code which absolutely forbids premarital sex, homosexual sex, abortion, the lethal exposure of babies, and many other things that the ancient world took for granted. And in the face of that entire plausibility structure, in the face of all of that persecution, 
It explodes on the world scene. What accounts for the spread of Christianity? When choosing to become a Christian was neither easy nor did it fit within the plausibility structure or a safe lifestyle. What accounts for this? A key factor is that the early Christians believed that what they found to be true about Jesus was not in some postmodern way truth for them. It was true for the whole world. They believed that with all of their guts and with their bodies to the point of martyrdom. They believed that. That what they found to be true about Jesus was true for the whole world. And so they went throughout the land telling folks that the one creator God has defeated evil and death through his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. One of, one of the key factors in accounting for the growth of Christianity is not that the pagan world was poised for it. It was not. On, on some levels it was, but overall it was not. The key factor in accounting for the growth of Christianity was a vigorous missionary movement. Now, granted, we should admit the ways in which Christian missions have been complicit With the dark side of things like colonialism. Especially the missionary movement of the 19th century. We should own up to the ways in which Christian missions have been insensitive to cultures. And even blatantly destroyed cultures. But too often our sophisticated embarrassment of the missionary movement is not a function of humility. Too often, our embarrassment about missions is because we no longer believe that Jesus alone is the way to salvation. That Jesus alone is the truth by which every other truth claim should be tested. It's when we have lost the, 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 the courage to believe that only Jesus is the life in whom life in all of its fullness is to be found. Here at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says that he is now running the world. And he, as the ruler of the world, has defeated death and evil and therefore... The church is to go out into all the world, into all the nations, and make those nations disciples of himself. And then he tells us how to do that. It starts with water. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make the disciples of all nations. How? Make disciples is an imperative. The other verbs are participles. How? Make disciples. That's the main, that's the claim, that's the command. How do we do that? Baptizing. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. It it, it struck me this week. Look, if you look at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel ends in baptism. And then I was noticing this week, turn the page, Mark's gospel begins with John the Baptist in the wilderness proclaiming baptism. 
The gospel starts in water. The gospel begins in baptism. Why is baptism? Look, this is no metaphor. This is not some highfalutin spiritual concept. This is baptism. This is the thing we do back there. Why does it get such an illustrative place? Why is it such a big deal? You should ask that question. And then you should learn to read the Bible like a novel. And you should go back to the very beginning. You know, if you get to the end of the Hunchback of Notre Dame and you want to know why Esmeralda is being hanged and Quasimodo is killing his father, you go back to the beginning and you read. And you go back to the beginning of the Bible. And what do you discover? You see God creating the world by sending his spirit to brood over the waters. And then what does he do? He divides the waters and he calls forth the land. Creation itself began in baptism. It began in an exodus. And then in God's great mercy, Noah and his family in the ark were saved from perishing By water. And Moses, an infant, at the very beginning of his life, was saved through the waters of the Nile. And then God used Moses to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt by bringing them in a baptism, just like it said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, baptism in the waters of the Red Sea. And then Joshua led the people through the waters of the Jordan into the promised land. And then Jesus himself went through the baptismal waters to open the door of God's new covenant. And then, keep reading in the Gospels, Jesus picks up all of these baptismal stories of creation and of Noah and Moses and especially of Israel's exodus from Egypt. Jesus picks up all of these baptismal movements and he brings them to bear on his own death when he calls his death baptism. He's picking up all of those streams and he's teaching you how to understand his death and he's saying that his death is now the climactic baptism. And that's why we get passages like Romans 6. Do, not, do you not know that all of us Who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too might walk in newness of life. Look, when the New Testament talks about baptism. Nine times out of ten. It's not a metaphor. It's talking about that thing we do. When we. Do you not know that when you went through the ritual of baptism. You were baptized into his death. Just like Scott read to us from 1 Corinthians 10. In, in Israel's exodus, they were baptized into Moses. In our baptism, which replaces the exodus, we're baptized into Jesus. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection, the spectacular events that are right at the heart of, Christian, of the Christian story, they happen to us in baptism. In baptism, God plunges us into the death of his son. And he raises us to share in the risen life of his son through the baptismal waters into new life. Through the water into freedom. This is how God has always worked in the life of his people. All the way back in the story. Through the water of baptism, God lays his mighty hand on you and declares to the world that you are his daughter You are his son. Your birth certificate, 
That is a biological, that's the record of your biological birth. But your baptism is the record of God's eternal claim on you. This is how we join the family of God. By plunging into water and coming up again. By dying and rising with the Messiah. So you see, if you've been baptized, you've got a lot more going for you than you sometimes think about. In your baptism, God delivered you from slavery to sin. Just like in Israel's baptism, he delivered them from slavery to Egypt. In your baptism, he gave himself to you and he placed you in his family. In baptism, you became his child. This is what the New Testament says. Look up the passages on baptism. Look up all the references to death and and resurrection in the New Testament. And yet, and this is something we can't skip over. This does not mean that your baptism guarantees your automatic eternal salvation. It is perfectly possible for someone to grow up in a Christian household and then turn their backs on Christ. 1 Corinthians 10. That's that's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 10. He's dealing with a church filled with people who have been baptized but have turned their backs on Christ. Here we see how God responds to those who have been baptized, who are regular attenders of worship, who regularly come to the Lord's table, but seem not to have a real Christian faith. Paul says, watch out, you're playing with fire. When you take upon yourself baptism and the Lord's Supper, you are saying, I am a part of the people over whom the Lord Jesus Christ has all authority. But Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 10. The king will not be mocked. You cannot have his name placed upon you. And forget about it. King Jesus will not be mocked. And those who take the sacraments of the king. Baptism at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10. Lord's Supper in the second half of 1 Corinthians 10. Those who take the sacraments of the king. But don't actually live as the king demands you are courting disaster. What was the last phrase Scott read to us from 1 Corinthians 10? Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Do you really think you're stronger than he is? Baptism, you see, is a gift with obligations. At your baptism, you are not only incorporated into the body of Christ, you are also obliged to live as one with that privilege. This means that you can hide in the shadows at the back of the church for a while, but sooner or later, you have to make a decision whether it's for you or not. So backing up and tying this into the big picture... Jesus Christ, through his life and death and resurrection, is the king. He's ruling the world. He's exercising his authority. He's moving this world out from under the rule of evil and death through his church. By sending his church out to make disciples. And discipleship begins in baptism. Just like the nation of Israel began in baptism. Just like the new life that came to Noah began in baptism. If you have been baptized, you belong to the family of God. You've been brought out of slavery of sin. 
You are free. You are on your way to your inheritance. But, but baptism is not a magic pill. It's not a magic shield in Harry Potter land to protect you from Voldemort. Baptism does not guarantee automatic eternal salvation. Baptism is just the beginning of the gospel. It's not the end of it. We must also learn to obey. To follow Jesus' way of life. That's exactly what he says here. Look again at our passage. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth is now in my hands. I'm running the show. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And here's the second participle. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now notice how this works. In verse 18, Jesus is the king. He's ruling the earth. And then in verse 19, we see that he intends to rule the earth through human beings. Because this is a coherent story. That's exactly the way it started. In Genesis chapter 2, God made humans. And then he said, okay, now move out into the earth. Be, you are in my image. Now do what I've been doing. Rule and reign. Shepherd this earth. Steward it. But we got so off track... That when Jesus came in flesh, he rescues us from our sin and our shame. He rescues us. Why? To stop there? No. To restore us to his original plan. So that we can rule and reign on this earth as he intended for us to do. Romans 8 says all of creation is like a crying baby. Begging for its mother to do what his mother and only his mother can do. All of creation, Romans 8 says, is groaning, waiting for humans to show up and do their job. Waiting for true humans to be restored to God so that they can finally be the kings of creation. Now, this is the framework in which we understand obedience. This is the framework in which we understand the many, many hundreds of commands and rules in the New Testament and the Old. Jesus' teaching shows us how to be the sort of people through whom his victory over the powers of sin and death, how to be the sort of people through whom that victory can be implemented into this wide world. Now read the Beatitudes, for example. Not right now, but read them sometime. This is Jesus' way of ruling. He sends in the humans, not the tanks. How is Jesus defeating evil? The Beatitudes says he doesn't send in tanks. It says he sends in the meek, the mourners, those who are hungry and thirst for God's justice, the peacemakers, and so on. Read the Bible. Read the Gospels. Jesus demands that we live a lifestyle that is very different from the, the way the world lives. I mean, for example, Matthew's Gospel has five major blocks of teaching of Jesus. And they're, they're, it's, it's done that way to recapitulate the first five books of the Old Testament. It ends with Jesus on a mountain telling his followers to do everything he's commanded. Just like the first five books of the Old Testament ends with Moses... 
Giving to people law, the, the, the end of the Gospels end with Jesus giving to his people law. We've come through the waters of baptism. Israel had come through the Red Sea, and now he tells us how to live. So just take, for example, the first major block of Jesus' teaching in Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus commands us to live a way of life fundamentally different from this world because it is this way of life that implements his victory. And think about what he does in the Sermon on the Mount. He commands us to handle our anger in a radically different way than the world handles its anger. He he commands us to handle our sex drives and our sexuality in a way that our world does not agree with. He commands us in in the way we handle our marriage and to steadfastly resist divorce. And the way we keep our word. And the way we relate to our enemies and refuse to retaliate. But instead, love our enemies and forgive them. And the way we handle our money. And the way we handle our religious rituals. And the way we respond to stress. And the way we treat to others. That's just a quick summary of the Sermon on the Mount. So in baptism, God does set us free. He fills us with the Spirit and He brings us into His family. And then, just like the nation of Israel, on the other side of the Red Sea, in that joyful spot of liberation, of freedom from slavery, then we head down the long, slow road of learning to live into our baptism. Learning to obey absolutely everything that Jesus commanded. Learning the obedience of faith by sheer new creation moral effort. But in our baptism, we entered into a new reality, a new family, a new version of the human race in which all sorts of things are possible that previously were not possible. In your baptism, you were given a new identity and fresh moral energy to cooperate with the work of the Spirit. Paul says, I labor with the labor that he so powerfully labors within me. It's this to and fro. So, notice, along with mission, make disciples. And sacrament, baptism. Christianity has a strong ethical code. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded. Evangelism, sacraments, and ethics. This is how we make disciples. This is how we implement the victory of King Jesus. And teaching people the way of Jesus, the life that Jesus commands. This is hard work. This is up close and personal work. This requires community, not crowds. It's life on life mentoring. It's apprenticeship. It's how a parent spends 18 years or 28 years, however long you spend in your house with your child. This is not like a seminar. This is more how a parent teaches a child table manners. It's why we create small groups and small churches, places where people can live in good fellowship with each other because we've got to be ready and willing to meet with people and to have endless conversations repeated over weeks and months and years talking personally with people, introducing them how to forgive 
Forgiveness isn't learned by, by a sermon. It's learned when I get up next to Stephen and Leah and see them practicing it. It's, it, see, to, to really live the Jesus way of life, it requires inefficient, intense, life-on-life community. And so Jesus is king. And his kingdom is working its way through the earth, through the church, as she makes disciples. And what are the foundations of discipleship? Baptizing people and teaching people. And as we do this, Jesus is spreading his kingdom. Now let's wrap it all up by looking back at Matthew chapter 24, a few pages to the left, verse 9. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated By all nations, for my name's sake. It's interesting. 24 verse 9, hated by all nations. 28 verse 19, make disciples of all nations. He's not hiding anything. He's not shy about the reality. As we evangelize, baptize, and teach, we will suffer like our Lord suffered. We will follow in the steps of our crucified Savior. We will be misunderstood. When we in America today articulate a Christian view of sexuality, you will be misunderstood. Cat's out of the bag. Go for it. Don't wait to be understood. Because the plausibility of structure of America right now makes that impossible. You cannot be understood on this issue. So, have you read the Gospels lately? How often was Jesus saying, you don't get me, you don't get me, you don't get me, you misunderstand it, you're thinking of it. Look, you will be on this issue. Now, there are other moments in time where there are other parts of the Christian view that, that you get misunderstood about. We happen to live in a moment. Where this will lead to your persecution. And it's not going to lead to crucifixion. It's going to lead to something middle class Americans hate more. Being misunderstood. Being thought to be the worst thing you can be in America. Intolerant. Take your licks. Follow your crucified Savior into the crucible. He told us, before he ever said, go back, evangelize the nations. He said, all the nations are going to hate you for this. And every generation, there is something about the Christian faith that leads to hatred. This is what it happens to be in ours. The two main things that will lead to our hatred today is our religious exclusivism, saying that there is only one God and all other gods are imposters and all other religions will lead to destruction. And the sexual ethic. These two things, this is what the world hates us for. So embrace your cross and go out and evangelize. And you know why you can do it? And you, you know why you can face the maelstrom of the misunderstanding and the hatred? Because the last line of Matthew's gospel and I will be with you to the ends of the earth. 
in the face of all that hatred, I will be with you. Who is with you? The one who also was misunderstood. The one who understands being misunderstood. The one who understands his own family turning against him. They said he was crazy. You know what kind of pressure that can put on you? When your own family laughs at you and doesn't take you seriously? That's who is with you in the midst of this. While we suffer, we are sustained by the presence of Jesus. I love the way our friend Jason Hood describes this. He wrote a marvelous book. He was a friend of mine. He was here a few months ago. He's now in Tanzania. Tanzania. In this great book on imitating Jesus, he ends this book saying this. It is one thing to attempt to carry a cross alone. It is another thing to travel with a friend who has borne a cross for us and secured resurrection and enthronement. He will not bear our cross for us, but he whispers promises of our own glory and enthronement as we stumble toward our lesser Calvaries. Church of the Incarnation, the health of our church depends upon our willingness to proclaim the gospel to the world. If we only confess the faith as far as it's socially acceptable, we will grow more and more into a sterile institution that is far from the living church of the New Testament. Just ask the mainline churches in America. They are a shadow of their once mighty selves. If we solicit hasty decisions for Jesus, but fail the long, hard work of making small groups, meeting with other one-on-one, fixing our houses so that we can have people into them, where there's table fellowship and the inefficient work of laboring to teach the way of Jesus. If we do not make disciples, we will grow more and more into a sterile institution. Jesus Christ is king and we are his disciples as we submit to the waters of baptism and learn to obey absolutely everything he commanded. Don't wipe any of it away. Read in the New Testament, do it. Read in the New Testament, learn how to find in the Old Testament what still applies to us. And then, as we share the good news of King Jesus with our neighbors, are you doing that? If we were the early church, would it have happened? As we courageously Share the good news in wise and kind but courageous and clear ways. As we share the good news with our neighbors and our workmates and our family members and our persecutors. As we invite them into the waters of baptism or very frequently in America, they've already gone through them. So what we're inviting them to do is to own their baptism. As we do this, as we lovingly and patiently teach them to obey all the commands of Jesus, 
As we do these things, as we deeply nurture our children and one another in the Christian faith, we are being faithful to our Lord. We can have confidence that as we do these things, He is indeed with us. We are being faithful to our Lord as we labor for our city and our valley to grow to new heights of flourishing, to be filled with joy and peace and justice and beauty. Let's pray.